Welcome to the next episode of the In Development Podcast. My name is Mariah, and this is a podcast for all of you city builders, city shapers, city dwellers out there that care about driving change toward people-centered communities. On In Development, we talk about how Canadian cities develop in and up. We are presented by IDEA, the Infill Development and Edmonton Association, a nonprofit advocacy group bringing people together that are like-minded to help shape our city. On today's episode, we have a very, very exciting guest, uh, Cameron Bardas. He's a licensed professional engineer with the city of Edmonton um, in the fire rescue services area. He specializes in fire protection engineering, which sounds as sexy as it is. He's a graduate of the mechanical engineering program at the University of Calgary. He has experience in fire, life safety, and he has a wide range of experience in forensic analysis, which we talk about a little bit on the podcast, uh, regulation development, and progressing the application of performance-based design as it relates to um, building and fire protection. He's an avid public servant. His career focuses on managing public risk through collaboration, education, and increased application of life safety science. I think it's safe to say that both you and I are fans for Cam, which would be uh, a great tagline if he ever decided to run for mayor, which I'm not sure he would, but um, huge fans over here. Yeah, he doesn't love being in the public eye, so I don't see him running for mayor, but I would definitely wear that button or that t-shirt. I'd scream and throw a megaphone on the corner of some streets for sure. Uh, <laughs> there's a few things that we need to define before we get into the episode here. This was a very technical episode. You're going to hear all about it in a second here, but a couple terms and things that come up that we want to define for you. So first, um, the volume four design and construction standards. So these are uh, city of Edmonton design standards for public infrastructure. Um, volume four in this case, it looks at water infrastructure. So water mains, valves, hydrants, meters, etc. cetera. Um, basically it's looking at where they go, how they're sized, what products are being used, what material standards there are. So, you know, uh, you put a water main in the ground, it has to be this big to accommodate this much flow. It has to be this far away from things and it has to be made of this material roughly. And then the last one, uh, Cam mentions this a couple times, the Home Fire Sprinkler of Canada Coalition. It's an organization that was formed in 1996 it uh, aimed at providing education about the benefits of home fire sprinkler systems. Um, they're a charitable organization and they're considered a leading resource in independent and non-commercial information about home fire sprinklers. Um, right on their website, they also help dispel some of the myths. Uh, Cam mentioned one in the episode, if one sprinkler in a house goes off, they all go off. That's not true. One other fun one that I thought was uh, sprinklers in a fire cause more damage than the fire itself. Um, that's a myth as well. Um, in, within three minutes of an uncontrolled fire, there can be massive damage to a house. Um, response time for a fire department is typically between seven and 12 minutes. So you'd rather have a couple of waterlogged items and damaged items than your entire house burning down before the fire department even gets there. Um, they also have an entire section on the website dedicated to developers and land use planners, which includes information about incentives and grants and resources to use in presentations to stakeholders and lenders really good website. I think we can add a link to uh, to our description here when, when we're posting this. But yeah, those are the definitions. Is there anything else that I missed? Yeah, I know this is a very technical uh, episode, but honestly, I get asked about how do we avoid uh, water main upgrade costs all the time. And Cam is the expert on it. So we brought him here today to, so you can hear directly from him, get to know him. He did, and we'll talk about it at the end of the episode too. You can contact him. Just shoot me an email. I'll send you his information directly. Uh, and yeah, Ryan, do you have any stories about fire that maybe you have? Wow. Way to set that up super <laughs> 
Casually, yeah. Mariah and I were talking before the episode. I used to live in a, when I first moved back to Edmonton, it was like 20, uh, probably 2014. I lived in a building downtown that was a converted office building. Um, so it had sprinklers in it. Um, so the units of the, the units in there were really awkwardly shaped and everything. And then we had no balconies, but anyways, we had residential sprinklers or, uh, fire sprinklers. So one day, uh, alarm system goes off, we had to evacuate. And then we found out later, I got back into my apartment. There was a ton, not a ton, but there was a little bit of water damage on the wall. Um, a unit above me, directly above me, um, a couple floors up had a fire happen in the unit. Somebody dropped a, a, a hot pot on the ground. It melted the linoleum and caused this massive fire in their, uh, in their room or in their unit and the sprinklers went off now the sprinklers made it all the way down to the bottom i was on the fourth floor uh it happened on the ninth floor and this the water kind of damaged each unit down below but not very much i had one wall that was impacted and everything was covered by my uh, by the building insurance and everything and the unit was saved the unit that was on fire was saved and it was like a blaze out of the windows and everything so you know sprinklers actually do save i would have lost a lot more <laughs> notably my cat because you know i thought the, the craziest thing is i thought it was a drill so i just left my cat in the apartment and then i found that it was an actual fire and felt awful about it but my cat survived because of residential fire sprinklers it's a hot it's a, literally a hot topic <laughs> <laughs> now let's stop with my ridiculously bad puns and let's get into today's episode So our guest today is Cameron Bardas. He's a fire protection engineer at the city of Edmonton. Cameron, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. Yeah. So Cameron, uh, first question I have, you work out of the fire station. So by transitive properties, you've obviously been in the firefighter calendar one year. What month? <laughs> uh, June-tember, I think. <laughs> <laughs> we can skip it too if you want, but I thought it, I thought it was a good way to break the ice. <laughs> Yeah, that's the, that's the calendar where I have to pay to be in it, I think. Right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, all seriousness, though, um, you are probably the first fire engineer that I met and that I think the only one that Mariah and I both know. How did you get into fire safety engineering or fire protection engineering? Because you have a background in mechanical engineering, is that right? Yeah, yeah. And fire protection engineering is a it's a it's a relatively niche field for engineers, um, and it's it's a it's a little bit disheartening to, to to get that feedback because we've actually had a fire protection engineer in Edmonton since the late nineteen seventies, um, and I think that's that's something that we've been actively trying to change. Um, but uh, my background is, is is in engineering from the University of Calgary, and uh, I took mechanical engineering. Um, you know, there's a, there's a passion of mine just coming out of school and, and you know loving how things work and, and work together, and coming out of graduation. The, the one thing I was sure of is, is I wanted to do something useful um, and that wasn't oil and gas related. Um, you know, I wanted to see some sort of public benefit in the effort I was doing. Um, and I got pulled into forensic engineering and fire and explosion investigations. And the, the, the concept of, of figuring out how things uh, went wrong and then trying to find ways to make sure they didn't go wrong again or to prevent bad things from happening was, was something that just just sunk to my soul as something I wanted to be involved with. And the uh, unfortunately, in, in public or in the private uh, industry, there's there's little room for corrections. Really, it's a, it's a it's a more of a blame game than a, than a correcting bad things from happening. Um, and that really drove me towards um, public service and and something that just absolutely fires me to this day. Um, you know, and learning from the stuff that's happened and finding ways to reduce the consequence of those kind of events and and make make our community safer. Right? 
I used to watch crime scene investigation CSI a lot in my 20s. Uh, I would watch the crap out of a fire safety investigation show. So um, whenever you get that off the ground, I'd be happy to watch. Uh, I, I wanted to ask about the evolution of fire protection standards. Why do we have fire protection standards? You know, how were they first developed? Where have they gone? And obviously, I'm talking about the Edmonton context, if you can keep it there. Yeah, well, I think it's it's important to understand that fire has been around forever, but fire standards are relatively new relative to other t- types of construction design standards. You know, there's, there's lots of history. You look at the great fires, that, you know, the great urban fires of the past. In the context of, of some of our great fires in Edmonton, you know, the, the 2007 fire in McEwen kind of stands out as one of those, you know, we call it conflagrations. It's a big word for fire that got bigger than it should have been and, and destroyed too many things. And, you know, developing standards around that has, has been been, has been interesting because it's generally based around a consensus approach. So something bad happens, and I'll, I'll use the McEwen fire as a great example. Is we have a, a large event like that, and we gather people with many perspectives and many backgrounds to reach a consensus agreement on how to change our standards and improve the way they're done. And uh, I think that you know the McEwen fire is a great example because you know it was followed shortly after by the Rutherford fire, which looked almost exactly the same. Um, you know, a construction site fire in a condo building that spread to adjacent buildings and it's, it's again one of the things that I, I critique as an engineer is we need to we need to understand when we apply fire regulations what outcomes we expect to get from them and, and again the basis we've had in the past of this consensus-based approach might work and it might not and I think if we're a little more cognizant of the fire science right so that the engineering side of things um, we can be a little more targeted I think with some of our approaches to uh, fire standards and make sure we get the outcomes we're looking for um, in terms of increased public safety. So how do are local fire protection standards and I'm assuming they're not all local they're all based off of um, is it similar to the building code where they're based off of higher levels of, uh, of policy yeah so historically our standards have been uh, very local and and over time become more generalized and more standardized across big areas and it's something we do we do well in Canada because we, you know a lot of our standards around building uh, fire and life safety are provincial based right so the building code and the fire code being the, the two predominant ones and we certainly certainly try as time goes on to to standardize our approach to some of the more specific standards. So we talk about the firefighting standards or the fire water standards in Edmonton. Those are developed for Edmonton, but one of our goals um, in looking at those standards is make sure that they look the same as other municipalities. So we definitely take a, a greater regional approach to make sure that there's consistency because we want to make sure that we're, we're not driving an, an Edmonton-focused way of doing things or making things difficult for developers or builders to, to meet specific standards. We're curious about how these fire standards, in your opinion, typically impact uh, redevelopment. Yeah, that's a great question because and it's, it's something that I think we're, we're learning a bit as we, as we focus on redevelopment in Edmonton as well. And and something that I think my predecessors probably didn't focus on enough when we developed the standards that we've got. So if I'm if I pick on, you know, the one in particular that's near and dear to my heart is the volume four design construction standards. There's a fancy way of saying our water standard, which includes firefighting water. Um, the standard um, that we have now was developed in 1991. Um, so it's changed very little in over 30 years. And it, it was really based on new urban growth, like greenfield development. Um, and when we try to apply it to infield development, what we're finding is that we're we're dealing with mature areas that met a different standard at the time or met different, different requirements or different performance over firefighting water. And we end up with this 
strange place where I was related to um, the reconstruction or renovation of an existing building. Um, you take a very old building and it doesn't make sense to knock it down. You can reuse it. You can repurpose it with a little bit of effort. But the question becomes, how do you renovate it to the current standards or how much do you keep it to the existing standards? And when we talk about firefighting water, that's a, that's a big one for us because, you know, there's some places in the city where, you know, our firefighting capacity is, is much lower than others because it was built a long time ago. But when we develop modern buildings and with, you know, with modern materials, there's certainly a fire risk that we still want to address. And getting that right balance between applying our standards to, to redevelopment, it can be a bit of a trick. So I think this might be a perfect place for me to interject because... Cameron, I think it was three years ago when you and I first met, um, the city of Edmonton was creating the IFPA process, which I'll ask you to define and uh, take out of uh, acronym context, because I feel like I only know it as an acronym. <laughs> but uh, as you noted, infill didn't really work in our standards. And so that's when our organization really got more involved. So yeah, tell me about the IFPA process. If you look at the law design systems, and I've, I've, I'm, I'm going to alienate all of your listeners right now, because I'm going to talk about how wonderful codes and standards are. And I, I do mean that in a, in a, in a way that they, they're so important in how they keep us, you know, they give consistency and, and predictability in terms of how we build our communities, but they're often very prescriptive. And, you know, for example, if we look at our water standard, it's, it's, it's very prescriptive on the spacing between hydrants. So hydrants need to be spaced, for example, 90 or 150 meters apart based on the zone and the amount of water we get from them, the, the, the liters per second that we get from those fire hydrants is also very prescriptive um, based on zone. And what we find is with redevelopment, we go into an area where the spacing might be slightly larger than what's required by the standard. We find ourselves in this this funny spot where we can't specifically apply the standard. If we apply the standard, we we trigger um, huge infrastructure upgrades, and this is where we came across a bit of a problem with, you know, wanting to support redevelopment, uh, infill development in particular, but introducing some major major costs in terms of uh, water mains and fire hydrants. You know, as a, as an underground utility, it becomes extremely expensive, um, not just for the water main and the hydrants, but for the reconstruction costs um, on the on the roads. So we developed what we call the infill fire protection assessment process. And, and what we're really doing is we're using, again, engineering analysis to look at a performance-based result in those codes. So we take the intent of the standard in terms of why was the spacing set at 90 meters and what are our expectations in terms of performance um, and fire flow. And then we work backwards um, with a specific development and make sure that we're still meeting that design intent. Um, and, it's, and it's worked very well. Our success is a bit of a failure in some terms because we introduced a process that takes more time. It introduces more uncertainty. But on the other hand, it reduces the cost for infill development. And you know, we've, we've seen that we've been able to support a lot more infill development without incurring those major costs by doing this analysis. So it really, it's a, to me, it's a success in applying um, performance-based design and using our codes and standards as objectives or performance intents rather than as specific rules that we must meet black and white all the time. So uh, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong. I believe the process was introduced in 2019 where people could start applying for your team to review their applications on like a site analysis basis uh, to see if the risk was there and if they actually needed the infrastructure costs that EPCOR was looking to apply. Yeah. Um, and I want to give Idea a bunch of credit here because I think it was, right, I think it might have been you that pushed us towards this um, and, and really 
bringing light to the fact that infill development was hitting this substantial barrier um, in terms of cost for redevelopment because of you know, water infrastructure in this case. We recognized that um, you know, it wasn't sustainable. It wasn't something we, we couldn't support infill development if we didn't find a way around it. Um, so applying the engineering analysis, specifically what we do, and it's, it, I'm, I'm, I'm generalizing a little bit, but w- what we do is we, we look at a specific development. So we're looking usually at the development permit stage where we have some building details because the building details are what kind of influence how much firefighting water we need to fight a fire within that building. Um, so we look at that, we analyze it, we apply um, a standard that we that we use in volume four as well called the fire underwriter survey. And basically it's a methodology, a consistent methodology for calculating the amount of water we need to fight a fire in a building. And then we analyze whether or not we actually get that much water with the existing infrastructure. So despite the space discrepancy in spacing or fire flows, if we still get enough water for the development that's occurring, there's no need to pr- provide any upgrades to the infrastructure, let's move ahead, right? It's a reapplication of the standard, um, but again, looking at it from a performance-based perspective rather than the prescriptive rules that, that's technically in the standard itself. Yeah, I want to give a shout out to um, Mick, Chris, and Neil, and if they're listening, they'll know who they are, who brought projects to me that said, hey, uh, we're getting these crazy costs at a really late stage in the development process. Is there anything we can do about it? Uh, and then a shout out to counselor, former counselor Scott McKean, who took a meeting with us to say, hey, <laughs> we need help here, uh, which brought me to you and brought me to EPCOR, which allowed us to create this process and create the cost share program, which is very near and dear to my heart. Um, so what, <laughs> what have you learned over the past two years? You get to see all the back-end analysis that my members get the benefit from. There's a lot to unpack there because I think, again, it's, it's tough to kind of capture you know, what, what we've done over that time. But I, I think the, the, the shout outs are really important because it's, it's, you know, it's, it's something that this, this infill fire protection assessment IFPA process that we do, it, it comes from the fire departments we're identified as, as you know, the ones responsible for this, but we're in, by no means um, the only people at play here. Um, and the support that we get from EPCOR Water, um, the support we get from urban planning and economy within the city um, is really the reason we're able to do this at all. Um, and that, that collaboration, um, say internally with the city, externally with partners like IDEA, um, is, is really why we've been successful at all. One of the big things I've, I've learned from it, um, and I think that, that, that I'm going to take away from this and, and keep reapplying, is that we've, we've identified an area where our standards, um, although they're important, and I think they do great work in ensuring public safety, they need to be reviewed. They need to be like fit tested, I guess, as, as we move forward, we innovate. Um, you know, when we look at things like the zoning bylaw renewal and, you know, city plan and, and a new way of looking at how we develop the city, we need to be on top of these, these sorts of standards to make sure that they're flexible and applicable and, and reflecting, you know, again, the level of safety that we expect to see. Um, and that, that can be a lot of work. It affects a lot of people. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a serious exercise that we need to take, take on us. So you'd mentioned that the IFPA process typically starts at kind of development phases. And Mariah had made mention that um, some of the members were bringing it forward that very late in the game, they were getting these uh, requirements. But what I've seen is that IFPA processes can be started during rezoning applications in some circumstances. Is, is that right too? You don't need all the details of what's going to be built on site before coming up with an assessment or... Yeah, I think that the the neat thing about it, again, what we're looking at is we're trying to balance the demand for 
firefighting water for a particular building, right? So we look at the building features. So larger buildings require more firefighting water than smaller ones. Sprinkler buildings require less firefighting water than unsprinkler buildings, right? So there's a, so there's a process to that. So there's the, there's the assessment of how much water is required for a building. And then there's also the assessment of how much water is available. Um, so not necessarily just how big the mains are, but we talk about pressure zones and, and availability and staging of, of our apparatus and friction losses and hoses. So there's, we're at the end of the day, balancing those two aspects is how much water do we need and how much water do we have? And some of those questions can be answered very early. Um, so when we talk about rezoning or even pre-application processes, um, we can certainly look at how much water we have in an existing area. Um, and that's, that's one of the things that we're really focusing on is how do we communicate that information to developers and builders to have, have it at hand because it can be used to design how much water you need. And, and I think this is one of the things we're really trying to look at is through this process, we're we're balancing development with the available infrastructure, the current infrastructure, and taken on early in, in that process of pre-op rezoning or subdivision, we can provide information and say, for example, you have 150 liters per second of, of firefighting water available at this site, please design your building so it doesn't require more than 150 liters per second of water, and then you don't have to do any water upgrades. Um, so, and that piece of information, and again, when given context, when we give um, the tools, so again, back to fire underwriter survey, if building developers and, 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 and builders have fire underwriter survey at hand, they can also do that calculation and, and verify, okay, here's the changes I can make to this building. Put it really in the designer's hands. You give them the flexibility to, to decide how to, how to develop their site the best way for them um, without triggering those water main upgrades. Right now through the IFPA process, the city takes on the responsibility of both. We're looking at the planned development and we're looking at the available firefighting water um, and sometimes providing feedback if, if there's a discrepancy. But ultimately, one of my idealized places is the city provides information on the water infrastructure and and give give builders and developers the the responsibility and the ability to design to meet that without triggering upgrades uh, I, I think again something we can't do without collaborations like this yeah it's i think it's been super helpful um exactly like what you described having that information helps you kind of design your building up front with uh, with what's available Correct me if I'm wrong, but this isn't a theoretical analysis either. You're sending out crews to actually test fire flows at a given location. Is that right? Not really. Um, we've we've got we've got more technological tools than that nowadays. Um, so where in the past we would have relied on on flow testing hydrants, so it's having come come out and actually flow them. Um, very seasonal, uh, hard to do in the winter time or in the winters we have. Um, but we have some high tech tools, and again, this goes back to the assistance we get from from Epcor Water and their hydraulic network modeling. Um, so being able to have a, a very high-tech model of, of how the how the system works and how the different pressures and flows are affected um, when we start drawing water from the water utility. So we, we rely on uh, EPCOR's water model, as well as some, some basic engineering in terms of looking at fluid dynamics and, and pressure losses. But when we say, you know, for example, I'll use that 150 liter per second number again. When we say we have 150 liters per second at an available site, we're taking into account where fire trucks are staging, what the capacity those trucks are, what our friction losses are, and the hoses that we're using. Um, so, you know, we are taking a very, very literal approach to calculating firefighting water. And, and again, going back to the fire underwriter survey as the, you know, that, that tool for estimating, well, how much water do you need to fight a fire? That's a big question. We want to be, we want to be consistent with that. And that fire underwriter FUS or FUS gives us that, that design tool. And again, something that developers can use as well to, to assess the need for firefighting water in particular development. So how, how close are we, and maybe you don't have the exact answer for this, but, but how close are we to having that data readily available? So a builder is looking at a specific site, 
going onto Slim Maps, for example, clicking on that site and knowing exactly how much water is available at that site, um, exactly what you talked about. Is that something that is coming or, or you hope will come? It's definitely something that, that we're working towards. That's, that's, that's the goal is to, to be able to provide that information, um, again, as early as possible, because I think it's, it's, it's essential for design. And kind of balancing that aspect of you know, our, our water standard, if you look at it now, is it maximizes fire flows, um, which means you know, very large water pipes, very frequent hydrants. There's a huge cost associated to that. Um, and the costs aren't necessarily just financial in terms of the, the equipment, but things like water quality. Um, you know, so so larger water mains means less overturns in, in the water, which means poorer water quality in general. So, like, I mean, there's there's lots of knock on effects if we if we just maximize fire flows. We're providing this information; we can do more with less. If we build buildings that require less firefighting water or to suit what's what's actually in place, I think we're finding a lot of efficiencies um, in that. Yeah, and so again, that's absolutely one of our goals. Um, it's it's a bit of a technical trick in how we get there. Um, so our our approach right now has been utilizing tools and engineering practices. That's not really sustainable, and we're, you know we see this as an opportunity for bringing in you know technology that will provide that information directly. Though we are definitely working through that. One of the things we've learned since we started this program, like again in 2019, we didn't realize how effective it would be. We were really trying to find if there was an engineering solution or, or a, a better way to apply that standard. And what we're finding with the number of applications that we get, um, mostly through development permit application, we waive upgrade conditions on on the water standard about 80% of the time, which I want to say that's a success because it feels good to be able to verify, wait a minute, we don't have to waste a lot of money on infrastructure we don't need. But on the other hand, it's a very strong indicator that our standard isn't working well, particularly for infill development. So that that's, that's our starting point. And again, the information we've gathered through the analyses that we've done, I think is going to be super helpful in, in giving us confidence in, in this, this approach. But it's a work in progress. So please stay tuned. So jumping off that, um, and Ryan, you stole my question. I was going to ask about information and, <laughs> and how we can get it to people. I've seen the success of the program. My members have seen the success of the program. You've noted that 80% of the applications get waived. That leads me to believe that maybe tying uh, our standards to our zones is not is not the right way to do it. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, some of this comes from personal opinion. Um, so, uh, so I do want to put a little bit of caveat on that. Honestly, I, I look at public safety and fire safety in particular as a as a mix of factors. Um, and again, we've we've put so much onus on maximizing response um, and and capabilities response, and in particular with firefighting water in places where again, what we found through doing these if analyses is that we're we've overspecified the amount of firefighting we need in most cases, and that that comes at a cost where we haven't looked at fire prevention or fire mitigation. Um, responding to smaller fires is better than responding to larger fires and, and putting all our eggs in the response basket or you know, disproportionately balancing those things, I think, is, 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 is a bad idea. I think the, the zoning approach made sense when we're looking at greenfield development. Um, there needed to be something to kind of differentiate a, a, a large demand for firefighting water and a small demand for firefighting water. Um, so, uh, you know, for, for greenfield development, I think we'll have, you know, it's still something like that where it ties use or, or building size or the factors that affect firefighting water to kind of categorize them because that infrastructure is built long before development occurs. Um, but in terms of infill development and, and redevelopment, where certainly where the city of Edmonton is focusing so much now, um, I, I think we, we, we will entirely decouple zones uh, from firefighting water requirements to me this is a this is a big deal and and where i we look at places where we might see a deficiency in water supply right so if the 
if the standard requires 300 liters per second of firefighting water, but we look at the buildings in the area that only need 100 liters per second, I wish we had smaller mains. I think 100 liters per second would be a better way to go about doing it. So again, decoupling that zone, I think, um, and something we're, we're trying to do through the zoning bylaw renewal is, is a target. I'm certainly hopeful to hit. Yeah, I think um, as a city, we haven't fully explored all the options for building buildings to, uh, that are more fire resistant, or I don't know if the general public or people know that the way we build is completely different than when the standards were created 30 years ago. And so retrofitting buildings or building within mature neighborhoods, it's using a tool for greenfields for infill, which in my experience doesn't always yield the best results. One of the things I like about, um, you know, again, providing an available fire flow, saying, you know, this is the capacity of an existing network and designer, give designers the opportunity to meet that is we give the opportunity to maybe find better ways to provide the same level of fire safety. And I'll give a, a super biased example. I'm, I don't hide the fact that I'm a huge proponent of uh, residential sprinkler systems. Um, it's not something that we that we do well in Alberta and Edmonton. It, it's a low utilized tool. Um, but I think part of the reason is because we've removed it from a design consideration. We don't let designers kind of contemplate the cost benefit of using systems like that. And I think one of the things we see, like, so in general, um, when you look at fire underwriter survey, a sprinkler building requires 50% as much firefighting water as an unsprinkler building. So something like a residential sprinkler system can really dramatically decrease the amount of firefighting water required. And, and it, obviously so, um, you know, the effectiveness of sprinklers means fires don't grow as quickly or get to a certain size. It's more time for firefighters to respond. It's less risk to the people in the building. It's more protection to the property itself. It's more protection to your neighbors, right? Um, so there's all these benefits that come out of it. And I think by kind of including or giving designers an opportunity to use those systems to you know, make better use of the infrastructure to provide public safety and other than just, you know, firefighting response or lots of firefighting water. I think we, we can we can find more efficient ways to, to come at those. Um, and I love when we do, you know, there's the odd application that comes in. So I mentioned 80% of our applications, we, we waive requirements for upgrades. Um, but there are the odd application where we don't have enough firefighting water for a proposed development. And something as simple as sprinkling um, can be really cost effective for the developer. So we're looking at, you know, somewhere in the area, $2 a square foot, depending on the type of building for, for a sprinkler system or $2,000 a meter for water main upgrades. Um, it's, 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 it's very, very quickly obvious that the cost benefit for of a sprinkler system far outweighs that of a water main upgrades and the benefits we get from it far outweigh the upgrade, the benefits we get from additional firefighting water. So again, giving those options to the designers and, and finding a way to kind of you know provide more design flexibility, I think is a is a huge benefit. Yeah, it seems like we're we're in need of a lot of education over the next couple of years, as well as an update to the standards. Okay, so Cam, why fire underwriter surveys? Yeah, so this is a good one. There's different ways of calculating the amount of firefighting water to to fight fire in a building, and I, you know I I treat the question almost like the, you know, how long is a rope? It's, it's one of those like, oh, is there, is there a specific answer? Um, and, and there isn't, um, you know, like not all fires are the same. If we talk about what's in a building or, you know, in terms of contents or open spaces or compartments, all these things affect how big a fire gets. So it's a, it's a very difficult question to answer specifically, but what we've done, um, in Edmonton and through most of Canada is, is aligned ourselves with a, with a standard practice of doing things. So the fire underwriter survey, um, it's a, it's an insurance, they, they, provide information for insurance underwriters on risk. 
Um, so they'll come into a municipality and they'll look at all sorts of factors that affect fire risk, you know, training of the fire department, their resources, allocation of fire department, or the, the actual stations. But one of the services they provided is a, is a tool for estimating fire flows. Um, so we look at building characteristics, so the size of the building, the type of construction, the user occupancy of it, um, you know, whether or not there's sprinkler systems, those type of things have a definite effect on the amount of firefighting water they require. We adopted that standard um, in, in Volume 4 back in 1991. And one of the reasons that, that we, we also linked that for Volume 4 is because there's other implications in terms of insurance uh, premiums to the city. So the ratings that fire underwriters provide to underwriters give insurance companies a grading or a system to assess what insurance rates should be through the city. And historically, we've we've actually worked, um, 2009 was the last time the fire department worked to change our resources, uh, so our equipment specifically to increase that rating or to make that rating better and actually has a, a fairly substantial impact on insurance rates. So understand there's that, there's that relation between risk and other industries looking at this. We want to make sure that we stick to that standard consistently. And again, it's it's used pretty clearly across Canada. That again becomes that performance metric that we're trying to hit. And, and honestly, the design guide. So when I talk about providing information to designers to, to assess firefighting water, we need to have a system that we can rely on to be, to be consistent and, uh, and appropriate. And that's, that's the one. So Ryan and I fought over the next question. Uh, and through rock, paper, scissors, I won. <laughs> In the planning world, um, we talk a lot about how cities are designed for everything but people <laughs> and how we want it to be designed for people and one thing we talk a lot about is how garbage trucks and fire trucks are massive and we need massive roads for them um, and i'm sure you get this question all the time but why can't we have fire trucks and uh, like they do in europe or somewhere else where they're smaller faster well maybe not faster but smaller and so more <laughs> more people focused what do you say when people ask you that question oh this is <laughs> This is such a huge question because I think there's some there's some simple aspects to it, but it's 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 one of those things that you know I, I find in talking to people it's it's that what is it the Dunning Kruger effect like the the more you know the more you don't know or the you know like it's it can seem like something simple until you start digging into it and then you realize oh this is this is more complex but generally speaking I I think there is a link there between how we develop and what we require those services right so when we talk about um, firefighting response for example fire trucks and our response pattern do affect urban design like we do have access standards that we reflect in the, the complete streets guideline for the city for example um, based around our response to the type of fires that we get and i think what people sometimes misunderstand is the number of resources we need to effectively fight some fires so i'll pick on single family home development as a test case for this our standard response right and um, for that is based around industry standards and we're talking 16 firefighters and four fire trucks for a single family home fire. And I think that level of response requires, you know, that level of infrastructure. But the question to me that is really interesting is like, why do we need that much response? And, and again, it, it's, it's a slippery slope because it, it's, it seems like a very simple argument, but one of the things I'd, I'd kind of draw people towards is um, standardization and research and great, some great engineering work looking at this. Um, NFPA or the National Fire Protection Association presents lots of standards. One of that we've adopted as a best practice guide for, for in, in Edmonton and, and throughout most of Canada um, is NFPA 1710. And it, it prescribes um, response characteristics for a fire department. So it talks about, you know, here's the level of response you should provide. Here's how quickly they should be doing it. So there's a, there's a standard way of doing that. It may look like a standard that prescribes it, but it's also a standard based on research. So they've done 
fire testing and research to show that effectively fighting fires in certain types of buildings requires that level of response. So there is there is research that goes in behind it that that often gets overlooked. Place given that question quite simply, it's like why can't we have fire trucks they have in New Zealand? This is like why can't we have building codes like they have in New Zealand, or why can't we have buildings like they have in New Zealand? You know, I, I pick on New Zealand because they've they've developed performance based codes that talk about fire safety design within the buildings. They actively work to improve fire outcomes in the design of the buildings, therefore reducing the level of response required. Um, from emergency response and it goes back to the what i was talking about with the the fire flow standard you know where we've we've maximized fire flows in this demand for emergency response um but maybe not paid enough attention to fire prevention or fire mitigation and i think that the problem extends you know when we talk about design and development of the city um you know why can't we have fire smaller fire trucks why can't we have smaller fires and and again this is where it's linked and I, I really really hope you know one of my one of my passions is is linking all these standards and understanding how they affect each other and seeing if we can't make some progress um in terms of you know effective and efficient urban design that we can match our emergency response to appropriately are there any you talked about new zealand as an example but are there any kind of regional or provincial examples that we can point to that used kind of a similar performance-based approach no oh good <laughs> no it's 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 quite cutting edge um in North America, I'd say there is some movement in trying to trying to balance urban design and emergency response, and and kind of see that it's a there's broader principles at play. I, I'll direct people towards looking at um, community risk reduction, um, it, you know, and specifically as a, as a as a term known within the fire services as looking at you know not just emergency response, but you know education and enforcement and engineering and economic incentives as some of the factors we should be looking at in in terms of urban design. Because again, if we if we focus too much on emergency response, we might be missing some great opportunities to to affect better design. Uh, one other thing, you know small inroads we've made in North America, um, I would, I'd love people to look into the Home Fire Sprinkler Coalition. And again, showing my bias towards residential sprinklers, they've developed what they call trade-ups or incentives where they show what I'm talking about and saying, you know, if you sprinkler a development, that development requires um, less firefighting water. It doesn't require hydrants to be spaced so close together. It doesn't require as large fire mains. Uh, it doesn't require the same scale of emergency response, right? So do you do you need 16 firefighters or four fire trucks to respond to that type of building? And that's kind of what they're trying to balance with that. One of the challenges becomes, you know, we don't develop the fire, uh, the fire department or firefighting resources for a development, we develop it for the entire community. Um, so really, I think one of the major major barriers in that is we're, we're talking about urban design change, not development by development, because you know we still have to respond to the, the worst cases that we get as well. So this is where I think rolling this into you know giving designers the opportunity to see the, the advantages of good fire safe design and to see if there's benefits they can glean from that. There's, again, things like the Home Fire Sprinkler Coalition um, I, I think will will probably be the, the the best path for us. Yeah, well, you talked about five E's, and it seems like we're only focused on one, which has got us to the place where we are now, which I think has some environmental impacts on the way we build our city, not only from like the way we fight fires, but also how much concrete we're laying down. Do you have any thoughts on what are some of the impacts that people don't think about environmentally? I love this. And this this is one of those things that really caught me off guard that I that I didn't quite understand, um, but was, was blessed to be involved in a project where we looked at the economic and environmental impact of firefighting. And it's, it's something that's, that's um, worldwide kind of been brought to the attention. And uh, when I first heard it, I'm like, the environmental impact of fires, 
I thought it was related to the effluence. I thought, you know, smoke and runoff. And yeah, that's like, I guess that's, that's pretty bad, but it's nothing in comparison to um, the carbon footprint when you look at the, the life cycle planning for a building. So if you take a building that's nowhere near its end of service life and it's, and it's damaged by a fire or it's lost to a fire, it will get rebuilt. The rebuilding of the building is the environmental impact. Um, and again, it's, it's really dramatic. When we start accounting for those factors, I really think it encourages, um, well, people like me and hopefully designers to, to think about, again, fire safety as, a, as an environmental responsibility to, to ensure that, you know, that we don't suffer fire losses or, again, interruption of buildings life cycle through, through a preventable loss like a fire. That's really interesting. I didn't know that that was one of the most like biggest contributing factors to it. I would have just, yeah, I would have just thought the smoke stuff. <laughs> so I know that people don't, they usually don't take down buildings unless it's financially the right thing to do. Uh, but looking at it from an environmental lens is really important as well. Even when we talk about redevelopment, new standards are, are better than old standards. I guess you could, you could argue, or they're, they're more recent at least. There's lots, we can make lots of use of the things we have, um, whether it be the you know, infrastructure utilities we have in the ground um, or the buildings we have. If we include fire safety as one of our concerns, I think we can, we can make a lot of benefits there. How, I mean, you mentioned yeah, buildings coming down. Uh, you also mentioned retrofitting previously. How do you retrofit or how do you balance kind of the costs of tearing something down and building it new to new standards versus retrofitting something that may, you know, keep uh, some of the building materials out of the landfill, but how do you kind of retrofit an older building to meet new fire standards? I'm outside my wheelhouse. If I'm, if I'm doing too much <laughs> talk about the, the, um, the actual economics of retrofitting, but I think we need to be careful when we talk about um, standards and, and how we apply them. And I'll, I'll use an inflammatory example. Um, you know, everybody's familiar with Grenfell to some degree or Grenfell Tower in London. Um, and it's a great example of, of retrofitting a building for cosmetic purposes, probably, um, but certainly energy efficiency. And that's something that we, we really want to encourage, um, you know, introduction to the energy code. And again, understanding that we want to encourage more energy efficient buildings in general, but we want to be careful that we don't miss how the standards are supposed to work or what we expect in terms of fire safety. And again, Grenfell is an inflammatory example, but it's a good one where we as designers lost sense of, of how we were affecting the, the functionality of, of that building or potentially neighborhood and really increase the risk to occupants as a, as a result. So, and again, th this type of process that we're going through with HIFPA is again, this, this performance-based approach of not just looking at the rules and trying to apply them as they're written, but looking at the purpose and the, the performance that we intend to get from those rules and ensuring that's met. I think, again, there's, we can make a lot of use of even old standards and existing buildings just by being careful by looking at the, the performance we expect from them. So before we totally move off of um, more of this technical conversation, so many of my members asked me about sprinklers and getting more information on sprinklers. Uh, so I just wanted to circle back. Is there a local example of some benefits that maybe people don't know about sprinkling sprinkling whole areas or... Yeah, well, and we have some some spotty examples within Edmonton. And I'm really proud to have worked with some builders, um, you know, on, on projects where, you know, we could defer things like water main construction by adding the sprinkler systems. And again, all the benefits come along with it. I really want to point out Livingston from Calgary, you know, so 
it was a, an entire neighborhood developed by Brookfield that basically used sprinkling as a as a way to, um, I guess, incentivize the city to, to allow development outside what they call the, the 10-minute response zone of the fire department. And one of the reasons I love it um, is, is because it was done on such a wide scale. So it, it talks about the community. And I think you know, we have to be, you know, from from a city official's perspective and, and you know, engineers and designers, we, we need to recognize the full benefits of, of what they've done there um, and the, the impact that it has specifically on fire safety, which, again, isn't isn't all emergency responses. Um, it's only fire emergency responses, but it, it's a really big deal. Um, and I, again, I point to things like the Home Fire Sprinkler Coalition that talks about the, you know, the incentives and the way sprinklers are reducing fire risk is related to urban design and not specifically back to smaller fire trucks, but kind of. Um, when we dealt with um, Blatchford, for example, that was one of the you know early design considerations is can we build different streets? Can we build different and a different urban fabric? Emergency response was was one of the key problems in terms of how we design those streets. And you know, again, we we, we really tried to look at um, ways to reduce fire risk as a way to incorporate better walkability or, or integration of the street. And again, I, I, I hats off to the folks that, that developed Livingston because I think they've, they've really started to pave the way. And one of the things I really love about that and where I want to provide some caution to the listeners on the application of residential sprinklers is, is the cost. Um, there's lots and lots of myths. Um, you know, I won't go through the, the Hollywood, all sprinklers go off at the same time. And, and you know, there's, there's lots of misconceptions about that. But the one that's, that's, that's a misconception, but not at the same time is, is the cost. And, you know, we find that again, it's not a, it's not a common solution used in Edmonton. Um, and some of the, uh, some of the costs are really misunderstood. Um, and the, the last I spoke to the uh, developer with Livingston, they were below $2 a square foot uh, for residential sprinkling. Um, so specifically NFPA 13D is, is the standard I'm talking about there. So that the one and two family home and duplex row house type stuff, but that's a, that's a much, much lower cost than most people expect. And I think it has lots and lots of applications for some of the marketability um, issues that we're looking at now. So zero lot line housing and side windows, for example. So I'd, I'd, I'd love to encourage more of that. And, and again, call, call some attention to the folks in Livingston and the, the great work they did there. So we talked a lot about city plan and city plan is Edmonton's uh, municipal development plan focused on really building people-centered communities, 15-minute communities. How do you see um, the work that you and your team currently does right now and is going to do in the future? How does it support city plan? What are the next steps? I'm so proud of, of the city um, in, in this regard, in particular urban planning economy, because they've, I think they've, they've really done a great job of, of bringing all these, you know, industry or agency partners in the city, like Fire Rescue, for example. And I think that's, it's so exciting to be part of something like that and talking about, you know, developing a city to, to be a certain way for people. Um, so even somebody like me, who's a, you know, crusty engineer <laughs> that, that works with fire, um, understanding that we can look at our standards um, and and understand how they can both impact or or prevent these type of this innovative development or support it um and uh, you know so it's something I'm, I'm really really proud of i'm so passionate about the the collaboration that we that we're able to have between our groups to to make this work i can focus on on fire safety and public safety and understand exactly what we're looking for in terms of you know outcomes and, and community development and uh, yeah I imagine you have lots more to say, and we've covered a lot of topics already, but uh, usually, you know, we do have to have an end to things. So this is kind of where we're getting into the conclusion, and, and usually we let our guests have a call to action. 
Do you have one? My big call to action is, is actually based around you know the, the work you guys are doing with podcasts like this and integrating with, with different parts of the city and really drawing this collaboration between all these different groups and kind of understanding um, the perspective of, of all these people involved. I can't tell you how much I've learned, um, you know, specifically meeting with the folks from IDEA and, and you know, understanding the challenges that developers come through. Um, that level of cooperation and good faith discussion and problem solving is, is so invigorating. And I think, you know, it really shows how much we're able to accomplish when we kind of understand it and, and take those perspectives to heart. So really, you know, keep up the great work, focus on gaining that perspective from other groups. And I appreciate everybody who's listened to, you know, people like me give a spiel about, hey, fire protection's a thing. It's just one more thing, but it's, you know, given that right perspective, again, I think it empowers designers and builders so much to, to make more use of the, the development potential that we have. So to summarize, listen to the podcast. Excellent. <laughs> I like that. Cam, this has been unbelievable. Um, Mariah and I, you know, we were very excited to have you on as a guest. Um, we, we've met you a couple times outside of it, but this has kind of exceeded our expectations still somehow. So I just want to say thank you for coming on. We're definitely going to have you on again um, as kind of your work through the city evolves. Yeah, I just really wanted to say thank you so much for all the support and work you've done to help make Infill more, more of a possibility in Edmonton. Uh, I know specific projects that are going forward because of the infill fire protection program, because of the fire underwriter survey and the work that you and Kale and uh, your new team members are doing. Um, I, I don't know their names. I'm so sorry, but shout out to the rest of your team. <laughs> yeah, I just, I, I can't say how much I appreciate it. But yeah, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks so much. My brain hurts a little bit, but that was an incredible conversation with very clearly an expert on what he does. Yeah, I don't know why Cameron doesn't think people are interested in getting to know him. Uh, we made a few jokes with him before we started recording that he likes to keep a super low profile and he doesn't, he's like, why nobody wants to know about me personally. And I'm like, I want to know about you personally. Every time I talk to you, I learn a ton. Like, you are one of the most interesting men I've ever met. I agree. And it's funny because you kind of put that next to his enthusiasm for every topic here. Like, you know, doesn't want to come on the podcast and doesn't think the information's interesting. But then once we get going, he's really interested and he's shooting out all these little anecdotes and fun facts and everything. He knows how to disseminate that really technical information. Um, one thing I did want to ask him, which I didn't, uh, because, you know, I respect him a lot more is my fire alarm, I think I have the most sensitive fire alarm in the entire world in my house. Like almost every time I'm using uh, my kitchen for anything, uh, it goes off and they're all interconnected, right? So, you know, the one goes off in the kitchen, then it goes off everywhere else in the house. And I'm not joking every single time. I live in a semi-detached. So I'm always very like embarrassed that the neighbors on the other side just think I'm some dweeb that doesn't know how to use my, uh, my kitchen, which is partly right. But I, but why are fire alarms so sensitive? I don't know. That's so funny that you say that. I set mine off all the time too. Like a ridiculous amount. I have like a whole system of like open the balcony doors, grab the tea towel, turn the like, and uh, I'm very odd. I can't, fans give me such a headache. So I don't cook with my fan on. <laughs> but like, I don't, I'm like, how? It's not even that close to the stove. I'm like, how are you getting that? And then I'll, but I'll burn candles. No problem. <laughs> but fry some turkey bacon. 
the world is ending. <laughs> yeah, very sensitive. Ours is the same way. I, I love that you said there's procedures because we have the same thing. We have like a tea towel sitting on the counter right underneath it. And like, you know, I'm, I'm getting ready to take something out of the oven and I like max the fan on my, uh, my range hood. And I'm like, you know, Carolyn, get ready with the tea towel over there. Like <laughs> we're, we're in like a system that we, that we know it's going to go off. I just want to know why it goes off. But, uh, I've had a few people be like, just take out the batteries, but that doesn't feel like the right move either. You know? <laughs> Yeah, I think about that all the time. I'm like, should I just pull a Phoebe and get rid of it? Or like... There you go. But in that episode, she never actually gets rid of it. Yeah, it never actually goes away. So that's a good lesson. Um, what do we need to fact check? So uh, Cam got into a few examples of some fires that were really devastating, both in the Edmonton area, uh, as well as in London, um, that really helped to change the way people build. So in 2007, uh, Edmonton had a McEwen fire is what he referenced it as. Uh, so not McEwen, the university downtown, but the neighborhood in the south side of Edmonton. South side? Yes, west side? I actually don't know where McEwen is. Southwest. Yeah, southwest. Southwest, both of those things. Uh, from what I read, nearly 100 homes were either destroyed or damaged. It was about $20 million worth of property that was burned. Uh, but there was no sighting of anyone that was hurt, which is really lucky. But what happened after that was a lot of building code changes were made, which is great. Uh, and the number of fires significantly reduced. On average, the fire department was responding to about 10 to 15 fires every year before that. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot. More than one a month. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that fire was attributed to arson, but... I couldn't find if, if any charge was laid, if any one individual was um, put to blame. So and the next one they talked about, our camp talked about, was the Rutherford fire that happened in 2013. Uh, another $20 million worth of damage. Um, and most of it had to do with a property that was under construction, but then it also reached a few homes nearby that was about a million dollars in damage. And that there was some damage to equipment and vehicles as well. And luckily, again, nobody was hurt. The same can't be said, unfortunately, for uh, the Green Grenfell fire in London. This is an unbelievably sad story. Yeah, like I'm not going to get too much into the details if you want to get into it. Wikipedia. Uh, is a great resource for you, but uh, unfortunately, 72 people died um, and 70 people were injured and 223 escaped. The, it was an apartment building uh, that had redone its building cladding and external insulation, and there was an air gap, uh, which was a, a big problem for the, the building and for the people who were living in it. So, yeah, it was just incredibly sad, and the residents tried to raise awareness to the issue before and anyways my colleagues um, to the to the families and to anyone who was affected yeah we try to maintain the positivity on this podcast so let's just slide right along here um the ifpa process we did cam ever define it in the episode i'm not sure but it is the infill fire protection assessment program um you were heavily involved in that right at the start uh so I was involved in somewhat of the creation, but it's super technical. It like hats off to Tam, uh, to Cam and his team, and to every other city department that put it together. They look at like site specific examples and like what's actually happening to see what the risk is, um, so that we're not overbuilding our infrastructure. And what that program has really outlined is for a long time we've been massively overbuilding our infrastructure. I think in the past, the last number I was quoted. 
In the past two years, we've saved about $70 million of infrastructure upgrades. So if that doesn't tell you that our standards are not where they need to be, I don't know what else does. <laughs> Building for worst case scenarios, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's a great program. I can definitely echo it. Uh, what, what came out of that fire protection assessment, I, I've had lots of applications go forward that got reduced. I think Cam mentioned in the episode, it was about 70% or 80% or something 80%, gets, yeah. yeah, 80% end up getting their, um, uh, the requirements for upgrades to the water system reduced either the hydrants or the mains or both or that kind of thing. So yeah, hugely successful program. What about the cost share program? They're kind of built in tandem, which is really exciting. So one was a solution to look at like this every site. The other one was like, okay, some of these sites will still need upgrades and this is public infrastructure that benefits not only the redevelopment, but also everyone around it because uh, there's deficiencies some places and, and not in others. And so council said, let's create a, a program with funding dedicated to it uh, to help share the cost. So developers pay for some, the EPCOR rates pay for the other, and at minimum, seven projects have gone forward. I know it's not a sexy topic, but missing middle projects are so unbelievably hard to be <laughs> to get built. Um, so I'm just, I'm very proud of that program. Yeah, no kidding. It's a small step. It's definitely, you know, seven projects doesn't seem like a lot, but it hasn't been, it hasn't been in, uh, in effect for very long, right? Like only a two, three years now? Yeah, so it's been in effect for two years. It just became a permanent program last fall. Uh, and so it's open for funding right now. If you need money, call up for. Um, and I really want to give a shout out to Kelly Sizer and Betty Ikra from so Kelly Sizer from the City of Edmonton and Betty Ikra from Epcor Water, uh, now with Epcor Power. Both those uh, women and their teams, unbelievably fantastic to work with. Yeah, I am so grateful for all the work that we've done together as a team. And hopefully we can have them on the podcast to talk about it. I'd love that. I'd love that. Yeah. Um, one thing that I wanted to ask you before you live in an, an apartment building, when I was going off about my apartment story uh, in the intro there, I, I wanted to ask you, did has anything ever happened in your building where the sprinklers have gone off? Or Sprinklers have never gone off in my building. I live in a concrete building with sprinklers, uh, but we have dealt with water problems. <laughs> so this year alone, I think we've had two or three floods. Uh, a couple years ago, we had a bigger flood. Um, my poor neighbor, she had someone who had a toilet overflow issue. Thank goodness it was clean water. But her whole, like she had just finished massive rentals on her apartment. And then it totally flooded. And she had to move out. I think I already talked about this on the podcast. She had to move out. Yeah, because the bylaws were changed. And she got a dog. And she had to leave. And I miss her. Now I found her on TikTok. So it's fine. Whatever. <laughs> Yeah, you really miss this neighbor. My goodness. I like didn't even ask you about her and you just brought her up. My goodness. That's like the best neighbor known like ever. That's I'm sad for you. Yeah. Um, but no issues with fires in your building. No issues with fires. Thank goodness. Well, that's important. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you shouted a couple of people out. I do want to conclude here by shouting out uh, Marco. Uh, Marco is a regular listener to the podcast and he, when asked about what, uh, who we should get on for a future guest, he suggested Connor McDavid. I agree with him. Connor, if you're listening at me somehow, and, uh, we'll get you on the podcast and we'll get your thoughts on infill. <laughs> hey, he lives in an infill project in a beautiful neighborhood. Maybe he wants to talk about infill. I would be very lacking in the conversation that you two would have about hockey. My knowledge is very limited to mostly rec hockey that my husband plays 
But you two could go off. That was fine. You could be our surprise guest one day. <laughs> I, I mean, I hope so, but I'll just be fanboying. I don't know if I'll be able to even get words out. It'll just come out in little squeaks and excited noises. So I don't know if him on the podcast is the best thing for me. <laughs> would be pretty cool, though. Anyways, thank you so much, Marco, for listening. And thank you for hanging out with me and uh, for getting Cam on. I'll uh, talk to you in a couple weeks. See you later.